You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. That's what data ethics is. It is essentially beyond compliance risk mitigation for the algorithmic economy. It's corporate social responsibility, if you will, for the algorithmic economy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, we unpack the aftermath of the riot and attack on the U.S. Capitol and the security and privacy issues that have arisen as a result. And later in the show, my conversation with Dr. Dennis Hirsch from The Ohio State University's Risk Institute on his research on data ethics. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, uh, let's uh, dig in here. Uh, really, there's <laughs> there's there's one, one thing that's top of mind for both of us today, and that is uh, what happened recently uh, at the U.S. Capitol. Yeah, so I don't know if you heard, uh, but there was a attempted insurrection. Uh, yeah. <laughs> about a week ago as we're recording this, a series of probably thousands of people breached Capitol security. We obviously know what the real-world impacts of this event were. Obviously, the most tragic is that five people have died as a result of, of the attack, um, right. as a result of this terrorism. About, you know, almost 100 people have been injured, many of them Capitol Police officers. This was an attack on our democracy. There is another angle here that, you know, it almost feels weird talking about this because it kind of pales in comparison to the loss of life and the injuries. Um, but that does relate to what we talk about here, and that is the significant cyber threats that are emerging as a result of this attack. Mm -hmm. There's this really good article that came out, uh, I think the day after the attack, from Business Insider. And it talked about how the siege on the Capitol by this mob of Donald Trump supporters poses a major threat to our nation's cybersecurity. So not only did, uh, in the words of this article, they breach barriers and they smashed windows, but they also appeared to gain control of the laptops of members of Congress, some of the hardware, etc. Mm -hmm. And that leaves a lot of open questions about congressional cybersecurity. What this article says is that various experts believe drastic measures need to be taken. There is confidential information that surely exists on some of these stolen devices. We know that some devices were stolen because, A, some of it has been captured on video, and B, many members of Congress reported that their laptops or, or other hardware was missing. Mm. So for those devices, those are going to have to be uh, completely wiped. In terms of more extreme measures, you know, many experts have talked about 
beyond securing existing hardware, you know, potentially wiping all computers in the capital since there's been such a, a serious breach and rebuilding its entire IT infrastructure from scratch. That would not be unprecedented. The IT department at the U.S. Capitol has experience with this because, you know, you have a whole series of new members that come in every two years. Oftentimes, laptops or other hardware is bequeathed from previous members. Hmm. And so there's some wiping involved there. But, you know, I don't think it's ever been done to this scale. And there are also things that we just don't know. Is it possible that some of these people who breached the Capitol grounds, and we're talking about thousands and thousands of people, are potentially sophisticated cyber criminals? That's an unanswerable question at this point. And the implications are are kind of terrifying because law enforcement, including the FBI, has said that it's possible that on these devices was national security sensitive information. So again, this is a secondary aspect of the story, but I think it's it's also going to be critically important going forward. Yeah, it's interesting to me because you think about uh, reading a story like this makes me think about what the folks who are in charge of IT at a place like the U.S. Capitol must go through just by virtue of the types of people they're dealing with, their their clients. You know, we've been seeing stories uh, today as as we record where. You know, they put up metal detectors yes. um, for folks to go through, and some of the members are refusing to go through them. There's, there's, you know, they're going around them. They're saying, or, or do you know who I off. am? Yeah. <laughs> well, or they're setting them off and then refusing to be wanded, you know, mm-hmm. to. So I think, unsurprisingly, that speaks to a certain attitude, as you say, of do, do you know who I am? And I think anybody who's, uh, who's dealt with, uh, I don't know, a self, any sort of self-important executive who doesn't have the time to hand, to deal with security things, your heart goes out to the, the folks who have to wrangle this particular herd of cats trying to keep them safe and secure. And so I suspect, and, and many of these stories have pointed to the fact that they would that they would have the types of things in place that you would expect where, for example, they could remotely wipe a laptop that has been either stolen or gone missing. You know, these are basic things that you'd expect today at this sort of level. And it seems as though reporting says that they have those kinds of things in place. But on the flip side, you know, cybersecurity folks will tell you that if someone has possession of your device, quite often that could be the ball game. Yes, that's Uh, very, very bad news. Yeah, Oh uh, yeah, so you know they in, in this article they mention uh, some of the cybersecurity experts they talked to talked about a couple of potential solutions. So for the devices themselves, geolocate them. That could give you some information as to whether you know you want to ret- try to retrieve it. If it's still in the Capitol, they dropped it in a basement. Maybe that mm. changes things. If it's at somebody's house in Florida then go knock on their door. (laughs) Yeah, go knock on their door and arrest them, but also completely wipe that clean. Yeah. And, you know, one of the other experts, this guy named Bob Maley, chief security officer of Norm Shield, said that congressional IT staffs will likely have to wipe all federal devices to ensure that they haven't been infected with spyware or have otherwise been compromised. And -hmm. like you said, there is going to be resistance among members of Congress to taking these types of drastic actions, Uh, especially as the people's business goes on. Um, Obviously, this might cause an interruption in uh, House and Senate operations, and there's going to be a lot of resistance to that. But the other side of the coin is, you know, if there is spyware now on our federal networks, that's a huge effing problem, so to speak. (laughs) 
And, you know, I, I think it, it's, it's something that kind of strikes me with a little bit of fear. Well, and it's, I mean, it's, it's not going to be an insignificant effort and or expense to go through this process. So as you say, it, it could certainly slow down or get in the way of uh, our representatives doing the work that we send them to Washington to do. But also, this is our tax dollars spent on cleaning up a mess that shouldn't have had to have been cleaned up. Absolutely. And we can only hope that taxpayers will be reimbursed once they take the assets of the criminals who have stormed the Capitol. <laughs> so I can dream. You can dream, Ben. Yes, exactly. But that's, that's, a, that's a long-term solution. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I, I just thought this was striking. Again, it's one angle of a story that's still unfolding and is going to be unfolding for a while. But it's, it's certainly a very concerning angle. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. A, a physical security breach that extends into the cyber realm. Uh, yeah. Chilling for sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, not 100 percent unrelated to that um, and certainly related to the breach of the Capitol. We've been following this story about Parler, which is the um, the online social media platform mm-hmm. where a lot of these folks uh, frequented. Parler had advertised itself as promoted itself as being a place for free speech. Um, so folks who perhaps had been frustrated by being banned on Facebook or Twitter or other places, uh, Parler welcomed them with open arms and said, this is a place where you can talk about all the things you want to talk about. And their chances are you will not be censored or have your things deleted in, in any way. Well, we found out that when they said things aren't deleted, they meant it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this, this story was so, really something. So this is a story by uh, Andy Greenberg, of course, um, a wonderful writer over at Wired. And the, the title of the article is An Absurdly Basic Bug Let Anyone Grab All of Parler's Data. So as these things were working their way through the system, we saw... Parler being deplatformed uh, in that Google took them off the Play Store, Apple took them off the App Store, uh, and then ultimately Amazon took them off of the AWS servers, uh-huh. which is where that's Parler's infrastructure. That's where Parler was running. When this was announced, it began a bit of a race against time from researchers, and I want to put a pin in that word because I want to come back to it, for researchers to grab the public content of Parler and archive it uh, so that law enforcement would have access to it and uh, folks who wanted to do research on Parler and the, the things that were posted publicly so that all this data would not be lost. And the folks who went at this were successful. They say they grabbed about 99% of all the things that were publicly accessible on Parler. Whoops, um, yeah. Well, other interesting tidbits about this is that evidently Parler did not strip any of the location data from photos or videos that people uploaded. As your, our listeners are probably aware, when you take a picture on your smartphone, for example, that photo is tagged with metadata, which is information about the photo, and usually that includes uh, GPS coordinates. And, Just if I could uh, jump in on that real quickly, there were pictures going around yesterday of um, all of the devices within the Capitol where uh, they geolocated parlor users. And it was mm-hmm. 
It, uh, there were a lot of dots on that map, Dave. <laughs> yes, indeed, there were. So, again, they were able to successfully grab uh, stuff from Parlor. Now, when this initially happened, as is the case with these things, there were a lot of rumors circulating around. There were different uh, stories about what was going on. And part of what people were saying was that perhaps these folks were grabbing private messages on Parler, that they had found a way to get admin access, and so they were archiving that stuff as well. Um, the folks who are behind this are saying, no, that's not the case, that all they were doing was grabbing anything that was publicly accessible. Um, they pointed out that uh, Parler's security was laughably weak. They were using... Uh, or, or the methods they had in place wouldn't have been acceptable in a computer security 101 class, <laughs> yep. um, according to some of the folks they've interviewed in this article. So all that being said, I want to swing back around to you, Ben, and, and look at this from a legal point of view, because I can't help but wondering, does this effort run afoul of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act? That's a great question. Uh, so the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act prohibits unauthorized access to uh, another network. My and I haven't fully researched this, and I don't think you know we could possibly have a definitive answer at this point because we don't really know. My mm -hmm. guess is that this would not violate the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act simply because uh, they were scraping public information. In other words, they didn't have to use someone's password. To get in, they weren't they weren't accessing someone's private account to grab data. This was all stuff that anybody could grab. Could have publicly. grabbed right using relatively simple means. Yeah, so I I don't think this would run afoul of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act because I'm not sure that this qualifies as unauthorized access. If it, if all the information was public facing, they didn't use anybody else's password. It wasn't a hack. Uh, they didn't steal any hardware. So that would be my initial interpretation of this. It's also something where Parler would probably have to be the complaining witness here. And I'm not sure that Parler would want to do that for public relations reasons and because it would reveal kind of their laughably weak uh, cybersecurity protocols. So I significantly doubt we're going to deal with CFAA issues here. I'm not, I don't want to rule it out 100 percent, but I, right. I have significant doubts. What about the notion of Parler being deplatformed in this way? I mean, Parler is a private company. The, they were relying on other private companies for their ability to be out there in front of the folks who they were doing business with. There are lots of people out there saying that this is uh, chilling from a First Amendment point of view. Of course, well, I'll let you explain why that may or may not be, but, <laughs> but what, what is your overall take on that side of it? Right. So the First Amendment only applies against government action. It doesn't apply against private companies. The first words of the First Amendment are, Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. So, you know, we can talk about freedom of speech, the constitutional right. When you're dealing with private companies, it does not implicate that right. Now, we can talk yeah. about free speech as a value, and mm -hmm. I think that's very different. Uh, and there are concerns about deplatforming. If we're giving, you know, a series of young tech executives the power to deplatform large groups of people, including the president of the United States, you know, I think without context, that would be concerning. There actually is very important context here in that 
on Parler, they were planning an armed insurrection of the United States government. You know, if you look at some of these archived Parler posts, they're really terrifying. Uh, And when Parler, when the Apple store went to Parler and said, uh, you have to remove these posts uh, or we're going to take you out of the app store, it seems that Parler actually refused to do that. So, you know, when you're talking about incitements to violence, you know, that might be a value that supersedes the value of free speech. So I guess my main point would be, you know, there's no legal recourse here under the First Amendment because Amazon Web Services, Apple, Google can put you on their in their app store or not. It's it's their right to make that decision. Right. You know, Amazon Web Services is not compelled to host Parler. That's just, you know, that's something that they can decide for themselves. Uh, But in terms of the values of free speech, yes, that's implicated here. But I think you have to weigh that against what we're dealing with, which is uh, pretty explicit calls to violence, not just calls to violence, but you know, planning locations and timing, et cetera, and putting people's lives in danger. An execution of those plans. I mean, right. they, they did it. They, they did it. They actually did it. Yeah, this is not yeah. hypothetical. So, you know, I think some of these companies are going to have to make some broader decisions about deplatforming. I think Twitter was hit with these charges of hypocrisy because they let, you know, the communist Chinese government tweet really offensive things about the Uyghurs. You know, they let the Supreme Ayatollah of Iran tweet things that were could be read as, as calls to violence. Uh, so I think they have to be consistent. But once you develop these policies, which are explicitly related to incitements to violence, and you have an incitement to violence, that violence does happen, I think you have to follow through on those policies if you're, if you're the companies here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it's fascinating to watch. I mean, the, this, this notion of just the I don't know, community standards, I guess, of saying we will not do this here. We will not allow this. This is you are a guest in my house. uh, And if you're going to speak that way or say those things, then I I bid you good day, sir. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's really the proper way to view this. You know, it's not the government saying that these people it's not a content based restriction on speech. In other words, these people can find a different avenue uh, for the speech as long as it's constitutionally protected. Now, some mm-hmm. of the speech, if we're talking about an incitement to imminent lawless action, is not protected under the First Amendment. You can't do that anywhere. Some of the, what has been deplatformed is protected First Amendment speech, but we're not preventing people from saying it. If you want to build your own web services host, you know, web hosting service, and host parlor from there, that's their right to do so. The government is not stopping them. If you want to develop your own app store, so you know it can be the app store for free speech applications, then the government's not stopping you from doing that. Now, there are questions because many of these companies potentially are monopolies. And so that's right, been part right. of the criticism. But I, I really don't think First Amendment issues are properly implicated here. Yeah. All right. Well, again, it's a story by Andy Greenberg over on Wired. Uh, It's a good one. Uh, Do check it out. We'll have links to all of our stories in the show notes here. We would love to hear from you. If you have a question for us, you can call us and leave a message. It's 410-618-3720. Or you can send us an email to caveat at thecyberwire.com. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go. 
helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Dennis Hirsch from the Ohio State University's Risk Institute, and we were discussing some of his research on data ethics. Here's my conversation with Dennis Hirsch. I'm a privacy law professor, as I mentioned, at the Moritz College of Law and at Capital Law School. I'm also a research fellow at the Risk Institute, which is at the Fisher College of Business at Ohio State. But I've been teaching and writing about privacy law for quite a while now. And I started to hear about this idea of data ethics. Companies were talking about doing data ethics. Uh, There was starting to be some writing about this. And I wondered, you know, what is this? You know, what is data ethics? What are we talking about here? What's, What's emerging? And I actually put together an interdisciplinary research team at Ohio State to dig into this because, as it turned out, We needed an interdisciplinary group to understand it. But here's what we figured out after talking to a variety of companies and spending about two years, both through interviews and surveys, researching business data ethics. It really starts with a fundamental economic change that we, our society, has experienced in the last decade or so, which is the increasing prevalence in business and government, but we're focused here on business, the increasing prevalence of advanced analytics and AI. And so more and more companies are using this technology or these technologies in their business operations, in their human resources. You know, we're using them at Ohio State in school admissions, in advising students. They're being used in HR departments. They're being used, you know, in in many different places in our economy and government. That's a fundamental change. And these technologies are being used because they produce significant benefits, social and economic benefits. But they also pose important new risks, risks to privacy, risks of manipulation. As we saw with Cambridge Analytica, for example, they were, you know, the controversial thing they were doing was using advanced analytics to motivate, to to manipulate voters risks of bias and uh, discrimination against protected classes, risks of greater opacity and black box decision-making, risks of increasing inequality. These are all really significant issues that are emerging around the use of advanced analytics and AI. And as we talked to these companies, we learned that in their view, privacy law doesn't successfully or adequately address these risks. I mean, usually what companies would do to kind of address risks from their use of data would be to comply with privacy law. But they found that privacy law was not sufficient to to protect people and so to protect the company's reputations themselves with respect to these technologies. And the reasons kind of boil down to, to two core things. One, The essence of privacy law is to give people notice of the fact that their personal information is being collected and some degree of choice as to whether to allow that collection and allow 
the use, right? So notice and choice is at the heart of privacy law. But generally, we cannot understand what analytics can learn from our data, what can be inferred from our data. We, you know, the customers at Target, in a famous example, may have thought that they were just giving uh, their purchase information, the female customers. But in fact, the company was using that to infer with a great degree of accuracy whether they were pregnant. Um, mm. You know, so people didn't know what they're giving up. And if you don't know what you're giving up, you can't understand what can be inferred from your personal information through the use of advanced analytics. You can't make meaningful choices about it. So privacy law is really not able to protect people from these risks. And the other reason being that the risks go well beyond privacy to bias against protected classes, to manipulation, to mm. black box decision-making, et cetera. So what the company said is, in order to protect individuals, protect society, and so protect our own reputations, essentially, because uh, I think that's a core motivation there, we need to go beyond the law. We need to do more than what privacy law requires. We have to go beyond the realm of law to the realm of ethics. And that's how they use the term. And, and so that's what, at least as it is being used in the business world and, you know, among kind of companies that use a lot of data, these are the types of companies we talk to. That's what data ethics is. It is essentially beyond compliance risk mitigation for the algorithmic economy. It's corporate social responsibility, if you will, for the algorithmic economy. And, you know, I come to privacy law. Originally, I was a, a professor of environmental law before I got really interested in this fascinating area of, of data and privacy. Mm. Um, but we've seen beyond compliance behavior in other areas, for example, with respect to greenhouse gases. We're all familiar with companies, you know, trying to achieve zero carbon emissions, for example, right? Even though the law doesn't require it, the, you know, beyond compliance behavior is, is, is something that we, we have seen in other contexts. I think we're seeing it here in the area of advanced analytics and AI because of the significant, very real risks that these technologies create along with their many benefits. And the fact that the law as yet has not caught up to those risks, is not adequate to address them and protect people. And so for reasons of what I'll call, you know, kind of enlightened self-interest, companies are going beyond what the law requires and entering what they call the realm of ethics. And so, you know, some people hear the word ethics and they think, oh, you know, these companies are trying to align their operations with some moral philosophy, you know, Aristotelian ethics or Kantian ethics or something like that. And there's a bunch of discussion about that in the literature. Um, I don't think that's really what's happening here. Um, what's going on is we're seeing a new form of beyond compliance risk mitigation for companies that use advanced analytics and AI. And that's how I understand and, and how, you know, from our interviews with about 23 uh, leading companies and their lawyers and consultants and our survey, we had a sample of about 246 companies. They didn't all respond, but we did a broad survey of companies as well. That's what we're hearing them say 
they mean when they talk about data ethics. What did you discover in terms of what is motivating these companies? What goes into the decision-making process in terms of, I think of, you know, there's that sort of the notion that just because we can doesn't mean we should. And, you know, you you, you mentioned um, environmental laws, and, and that makes me think of, you know, there are some companies who will go right up to the line and say we're going to, uh, you know, pollute or, or uh, you know, the, the waste from our factory will will be exactly right up to where we we're allowed to do. And others will say, no, no, you know, we're, we're going to we're going to strive to do much better than that. But what sort of things are, are motivating these companies to make those decisions as to where they're going to land on that spectrum? Yeah, uh, it's, that's a great question. Um, and it's one that we inquired into in our research. I don't think that the companies we talked to who are kind of recognized leaders in this area, and that's who we sought out, uh, the ones who are really being thoughtful and really paying attention to this, I don't think they're representative necessarily of all companies that are using advanced analytics and AI. And I'm sure there's a broad continuum, as you were just mentioning, you know, in the environmental area from those who are pushing it right up to the line and doing everything they can without getting enforced against, and those who are trying to be more proactive and be seen as responsible actors in this area. But you raise a great, great question. If the law does not require data ethics, then why are companies doing it, right? Why are they making, in some cases, significant investments in personnel and technology and other things? I think that it's not idealism, in my view. You know, there are some companies who have corporate values that they take very seriously and and that motivate them. Either a founder or a CEO has really made those part of the the culture and the DNA. But that's not primarily what we saw. I I, I would call it kind of enlightened self-interest in a way. Mm -hmm. And I think it breaks down, especially along two lines. One is the threat of future regulation. And we're seeing regulation in this area in Europe And we're starting to see proposals for it in the United States as well. It's emerging here. So if you're a company that's using advanced analytics, perhaps you want to get in front of that and show that you can be a responsible actor, that others can be responsible actors, and that regulation is not needed. So we would call that preempting regulation. That's a very common motivation for self-regulation that we see in other industries and other contexts, including the environmental context. I think that's one dimension of it here. Another is shaping regulation, like an influencing regulation. So if you can show how this is done in a way that works for your business, and hopefully convince regulators that it also protects the public, then maybe you can have some influence on how this regulation is, you know, takes form. And from the business's perspective, you know, influence it to be both protective and workable with, with the business models. Um, And finally, you know, there is aligning your systems with the regulation that is coming so that when it does come, you can deal with it more cheaply and effectively than your competitors. So kind of Mm. a relative advantage. So for all of those reasons, and we heard each of those themes, um, but again, those are quite common when you think about self-regulation in other fields and other contexts. What really stood out here, though, that you don't hear as much in some other contexts was the importance of reputation. And I think reputation 
is really critical in this area where the business model is premised on using people's personal data. If you are seen as being not trustworthy, you know, people will hold back or other companies won't share data with you. If you lose your reputation as a good steward of that data, it can really undermine your business. And so I think these companies are saying, look, if we are accused, there's a front page newspaper story of us being, you know, biased, racially biased, for example, in our data analytics or some kind of privacy invasion, like the Target story I told a minute ago of, you know, using analytics to infer whether people are pregnant or manipulation like Cambridge Analytica did to infer people's psychological types and then send them manipulative targeted ads related to voting that, that speak to their unconscious and manipulate them. Those can be very controversial and have a huge impact on the company's reputation for being a trustworthy steward of data. So, you know, you, you put it really nicely a minute ago. You said these were the you know, things, you know, companies have to decide, should we do this or not? Mm. Here we're dealing with advanced analytics and AI projects and, and practices that are legal and are technically feasible. So companies can do them. The question for them is, should we do it? And some companies actually refer to this as the should we questions. That's what they're dealing with in data ethics. And as they think about these should we questions, the reputational question comes up very strongly. So they worry about reputation with their users. They worry about reputation with their customers. They worry about reputation with regulators. We expected all that. The other areas where they worry about reputation that were a little bit surprising to us were their business partners. We had one very large technology company, lawyer there who deals with, with data ethics, say, look, individuals can't really understand what we're doing with their data. But our business partners, they do due diligence on us. And if they're going to give us data, they need to know that we are going to be a good steward of it because otherwise it's going to have an effect on them. So we have to be good stewards of data for our business partners. The, the other area that came up that was a little interesting to us, and this was a Silicon Valley firm that we talked to, said, look, to be successful in Silicon Valley, you have to have great ideas and you have to have capital. But most importantly, or equally importantly, you have to have the talent. That is critical to success. And, you know, this is data scientists, young people kind of coming out of grad school, coming out of, you know, out of the university. And they have progressive values. And if they think that we are not doing things that are accept socially acceptable, if they think we're abusing people, if they think that we're being evil, they, they're going to leave us and they can leave us. There's so much demand for them and we will lose the talent. So this mm -hmm. is critical to our business for employee retention and reputation among employees. So for all of those reasons, you know, reputation, I think, is, is really a key motivator here. And the companies tend to put it in terms of trust. We want to be trustworthy. And we see being trustworthy as, you know, an essential strategic commodity for us in the algorithmic economy. That's a motivator here, even more so than you see in some other areas. You know, you, you bring up the notion that a lot of what happens behind the scenes with these 
algorithms is is kind of in a black box and the users there's no transparency to the users and and uh, it's quite possible that most people wouldn't really understand what was going on. That's right. Um, if they, if it was explained to them, or if it were, if it were more transparent, and and something we've discussed here on this show is is this notion of kind of using you know public health as a as a analogy, and is there a role? Do we need an equivalent of like the FDA for? These algorithms where before you turn them loose on the public, uh, much in the same way that you a pharmaceutical has to be tested. You have to first you must prove to us that there will be no harm done with this before we as a as a people allow you to to turn it loose on our society. I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on thinking along those lines. We absolutely need that. And frankly, we need a new form, a new paradigm of regulation with respect to data for exactly the reason that you describe. So our paradigm to date, the the privacy law paradigm, has been to empower individuals, essentially, give them notice of the collection and use of their data and let them make choices, right? Mm. But if, if this is so opaque... And, and sometimes, you know, with machine learning, it's not only opaque to the individuals whose data is being used, it's opaque to the companies themselves. They sometimes don't know how the machine got to where it did, right? Mm. So that's kind of double opacity in a way. Right. Then kind of just empowering individuals, which is our primary regulatory paradigm in privacy law. It's not all that privacy law is. There's other things as well, but it's it's at the heart of it. Really is not sufficient to protect people. And so to protect people, and and I do think, you know, there's a role for society, for government to, you know, these are significant risks. And I think there's a role for protection here. We need regulation that draws substantive lines, that draws lines between what's appropriate and what's inappropriate, what's fair and what's unfair, what's acceptable and what's hurtful. And that's a very different approach to regulation of data and, and data technologies than the privacy law paradigm, which is just give notice, allow some degree of choice, and then basically whatever people accept is legitimate. This is saying, no, like we have to think about what our values are, and we have to make some value judgments as a society as to what we think is acceptable and good for people and what we think is not and draw some substantive lines. And frankly, that's what companies are starting to do themselves. That's the should we question, right? Hmm. Like, is this consistent with our values and what we think the values of society are? And so I've actually written about this new paradigm of regulation. And there's other, um, there's other scholars who are starting to map out different ideas for this as well. It's a fascinating emerging area of law and policy scholarship is trying to think what should this next step be to protect people in the algorithmic economy where they can't understand how their data is being used. What's, what's the net? It's not, it doesn't replace privacy, but what, what else is needed? But I think we're seeing these companies, you know, slightly fumbling way, feeling their way in the dark a bit you know, try to map out some of these these frameworks for themselves to be seen as trustworthy 
and to uphold their own values. And, and for all the reasons that we discussed a, a couple of minutes ago. But but yeah, I think I think we do need regulation here and we need a new type of regulation. And, and we're, we're starting to see it emerge. In fact, some of the privacy bills that are in Congress right now also have elements of this. It, it's kind of mixed in with the more traditional privacy law approach, but but it's in there and it's emerging. All right, Ben, what do you think? Very interesting conversation. I like it because it's really a conversation about values and the ethics of private companies. And it's kind of heartening to see that private organizations, maybe for selfish reasons, you know, for their own reputation, <laughs> but but maybe not. I mean, maybe just wanting to get out in front of some critical issues, they're setting their own standards for uh, AI and, you know, these, these analytics. And they're getting out in front of federal regulators and state regulators. I just think it's promising that we're seeing that from the private sector. Uh, so compared to the otherwise very dark topics that we discussed in our uh, <laughs> podcast, I thought this was more encouraging than not. It's good to hear that we have people from The Ohio State University who are so dedicated to this new field of the ethics around advanced analytics and AI. Yeah, it's interesting to me that it could be seen as a competitive advantage, you know, that that people are going to to find value in doing business with companies who are doing the right thing for its own sake. Absolutely. Uh, and that's what we're always looking for. I mean, in the absence of federal regulation, which we've talked a million times about, not only does the court system move very slowly, Congress moves very slowly. They're always very reactive on these issues. Mm-hmm. I think our best hope is the private sector. So if, if we see that it does give organizations a competitive advantage to factor in some of these ethical concerns, I think it benefits all of us because there's going to be sort of, instead of a race to the bottom, there's going to be a race to the top where companies are encouraged. Uh, for the purposes of their bottom line, you know, to really take these issues into consideration. <laughs> it's, it's, an, it's an amazing thing to, to ponder, the notion of, uh, of, of corporations trying to out-ethics each other, right? I know, but you know what? <laughs> it's kind of encouraging. And many of the companies, as he said, really do have values based on, you know, either the values of their CEO or just corporate values. Many of them don't, and they're doing it for selfish reasons, right. which is good in a way. But, you know, I just think this is going to be a, a growing field in the cybersecurity realm because I think there are a lot of ethical issues we need to tackle. I think it needs to be multidisciplinary. Uh, it's good to have lawyers looking at this, but it's also we need technologists in the room as well. Uh, and yeah. I think it's, this is just going to be something that we continue to talk about um, as these technologies develop. Yeah, it's a trend worth supporting. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, we thank Dr. Dennis Hirsch from uh, The Ohio State University for joining us. Uh, we want to thank all of you for listening. That is our show. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>